Yes, good morning, everyone. And welcome again to uh, Gracie Evangelical Free Church's online service this morning. Um, my name is Aaron Calhoun. For those that might be watching and maybe not a part of the church, I'm one of the elders here. And I'm going to be delivering the sermon this morning. Um, as many of you, uh, everybody in the church likely knows, I'm one of the frontline physicians in COVID-19. And so that's been on my heart a bit. But um, before we open uh, the sermon this morning, I'd just like to open us up in a word of prayer. I thank you for the way that you have guided and moved our church through a difficult year. I thank you, Lord, for your blessings and for the love, the self-giving, unending love that you've shown us. Lord, I ask as we would look into your word this morning, you would show us a new glimpse of who you are. You would show us a new vision of what you would have us do, and you would give us and equip us with what we need to serve our world and to serve our church and serve our communities in the times ahead. In your name we pray. Amen. As I was uh, thinking about a title for the sermon, I'm sorry it came a bit late to put in the bulletin, the one that came to mind was uh, the Aztecs COVID-19 and the character of God. And I know that's a rather odd title. I was thinking of my sermon a few years back that began with the story of a Swedish train robbery and trying to think of something similar. But I am indeed going to begin with the Aztecs, and you'll soon, you'll soon, you'll soon I hope, see why they're relevant to the scripture that we'll be reading this morning. Um, I've always found them to be an interesting culture, and I recalled this story came back to me as I re- reflected on my high school experience. My son is in high school and is in that position where he's doing reports for various classes, and I recalled in high school I had to do a report for world cultures on some past people group of some sort. I picked the Aztecs. I thought they'd be interesting. Founded in the 14th century, I found out, in central Mexico. It's a very complex civilization uh, and endured really for a number of centuries until they were finally conquered uh, in the 16th century. But if you ask most people, um, I tried this on my own family to make sure that I wasn't uh, an error here, um, what they think of when they think of this uh, empire, this people group of world past, uh, world's uh, time past, um, the words warlike tend to come to mind, or or maybe uh, bloodthirsty is one of the words my son chose. And recognizing that those words can have many connotations and should not be applied across the board to any culture, I think as I researched this group of people way those many decades ago, I really was impressed that they're not all that far off. You know, this was a culture, um, and really this reputation is upheld by their own translated writings, that really glorified war, frequent references to it. Um, Their children, their male children, were trained in it at a very young age. It was how they played. It was what they did. It was a major part of their civilization. And I was very curious about that. Why? Why why would this be? Um, Well, if you look into it, they tended to go to war for the same reasons we all do, for money, for reasons of power, for reasons of land. But there was something unique about this culture, and it's this that I really want to draw our attention to this morning as we seek to maybe reflect on ourselves uh, as we've come out of a difficult year and are um, going into another one with um, just as much uncertainty, although hopefully we're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. There is a specific kind of war in the Aztec culture that, again, I learned about at this report. It was called, if you translate it, the War of the Flowers or the Flowery War. And I'm like, what's that all about? Well, it turned out that this was a war that was intended primarily against nations that were around them, that had similar belief systems, to provide sacrificial victims. The whole point of this was to capture prisoners that would then be sacrificed uh, on one of their altars. And that was a major part of their, I hesitate to call it a theology, their mythology, their their religion, was this idea of, of human sacrifice. Um, they practiced it on a massive scale. I found one document that is probably exaggerated, thankfully, but reported 80,400 done in one day 
uh, to consecrate one of their main temples. Again, most people think that's probably exaggerated by a few decimal places, um, but it's what the document said. And so even if the numbers are off, you can see that they viewed it as something that was very important. And I'm, imagine me as a high school student trying to figure out why this entire group of people would do this. And I came to a really startling, for me then, conclusion. Why was this nation so much more violent in terms of these sacrifices? What, what were they doing? Well, I learned about why when I read about their gods, the things that they valued, the things that they worshipped. Um, in, in the Aztec mythology, it turns out that their main gods all required human blood to live. This was not a symbolic thing. This was felt to be as literal as something etched in stone. Um, if you were an average, everyday Aztec, you saw the night as something to be feared. Um, you saw the stars as dangerous supernatural beings that could assault and harm your family. You saw the sun as what drove those things away. And you understood that the only way to make sure the sun rose the next day was to sacrifice people. It sounds horrid. I can't put it any other way, but that's the truth. That's what these people thought. And this taught me something very important. The Aztecs are fallen people, as we are. No human being is any more fallen than anybody else. We're all made in the image of God. We have all fallen short of that image of God. Well, what then made this culture so much, so worse, so much more uh, violent than even ours might be? And the answer is, is they weren't any worse than us in terms of their love of violence. They had bad gods. The gods they worshipped were... Um, evil, for lack of a, for lack of a, a more all-consuming term for that. And if you believed that you lived in that universe, if you believed that that's how the universe worked, you'd be strongly tempted to live in the same way that they did. The, the point of me sharing this historical example is to show how deeply and how profoundly the nature of what we worship affects what we do, who we think God is, how we understand his creation to be run really changes how we think, how we feel, how we act, how we act towards others, how we act towards ours around us. We are what we worship. Now, I referred to Genesis uh, verse 1. In verse 1, 27, Genesis says that God created mankind in his own image. This is a, an area that I have really been studying a great deal over the years because it's, it's something that we all kind of hear from our childhood. Um, but in some ways, the phrase is kind of mysterious. What does it mean? to be created in the image of God. And what I've come to, what, what a lot of um, really good, solid biblical scholarship has found about that phrase is that it's referring to us as priests. It's saying that by creating, be, being created in the image of God, we are the ones who are supposed to stand and represent who God is to each other, to the world around us, to the creation as a whole. And we are the ones who were called to represent that creation to God. We're standing at the frontier. God made us to look like him for the sake of everyone else. And even though with our fall, with the fall we've come well, well short of this calling, we can't shake who we are. We can't shake um, what God created us to be. And since and we all know in our hearts we're image bearers of something, the question is what are we going to bear the image of? Because that affects everything about us. I, I think it's easy when you, again, start out kind of like I did with a, a culture this far in the past to say, you know, we're, we're okay. We, we follow the true God, and we do. Um, we may think we're all right here. And yet, I'm just going to be very, very honest. You know, as I've looked at our world over the past year, um, I've noticed that there really are some subtle differences that can make larger differences in what we do as to how even good, solid, firm, biblical Christians can understand the nature of God. And 
again, I'll just be honest. I'm, as a doctor, I have to make diagnoses every day. And I, I, this is a problem I see happening right now. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily seeing it so much within our church family here, but I'm definitely seeing it in the church families around us. I'm definitely seeing it in, in the nation around us. And I think it's a good time now that we're coming out of 2020, going into 2021, to maybe recalibrate. Um, I think we would all recognize we've been through a very difficult time here. We've um, been dealing with a pandemic that's unlike anything that any of us have ever seen um, in our lifetimes. They call it a once-in-a-century pandemic, and I hope it doesn't come back for another century once we get rid of this one. Um, we've also had unprecedented uh, protests this summer. Uh, we've had some unprecedented events that even occurred uh, this week at our own capital. And so I think it would be an understatement to say that we live in a very um, unsettled time, far less settled than most of us are used to. Um, and in times of stress, what we value comes to the front. What we value and who we think God is really begins to take on a kind of a paramount importance as we figure out how we're going to behave. Um, one of the things I've been doing over the past um, year is I've been listening to podcasts from other nations, Christian podcasts, looking at how different places have responded to the pandemic. And the, the responses I hear um, really kind of emphasize something that a lot of sociologists, um, again, I'm declaring fully my nerd credentials, A, by starting with the Aztecs and B, talking about sociology. But looking at America have noticed, and that's we're a pretty darn individualistic nation. And this has its pluses and this has its minuses. I mean, that's kind of what it takes for a small ragtag group of colonies, if you ever watch the Hamilton musical, to you know, free themselves from, a, from an empire. Um, and it's kind of the water we swim in. We just kind of assume that's normal. Um, it's really not across the world, but it, we kind of look at it normal, and it's hard for that not to influence how we do things. But I'm more and more convinced that in some of our responses, this may not be having the most positive influence on the church. And so, again, let's move from this kind of realm of discussing the world around us, and let's focus on the scriptures, because I think the answers to all this, I think the answer to who we should be in 2021, how we should move as we enter the second year of a number of global crises, um, and as we try to work to bring the gospel to the nations, it's got to come back to what God himself looks like. It's got to come back to the character of God. It's got to come back to us better imaging the God we serve. And so with that in mind, we're going to go to Philippians 2. So if you have a Bible with you, open to Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. This is a common passage, and I'm hoping to analyze this in a bit more depth as we look at who the character of God is. That's the lens we're going to look at it. The text reads like this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place." and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we just again end that with this is indeed the word of the Lord. Um, this passage is really interesting in many ways. Um, first of all, just the history of it. This is far from certain, but many um, scholars believe this is one of the oldest pieces of writing Christian writing in the New Testament. You might ask what that means. I mean, surely the Gospels came beforehand, and so the answer is, well, not really. The Gospels describe events that occurred before this, 
But this, this piece of writing was probably a hymn. Not everybody believes that, to be fair. Some people think that Paul wrote this himself, and that could be true. But many believe that this was actually a hymn sung by the earliest Christian churches. And when we see this, we are actually looking at one of the earliest worship songs that we have record of. So this may actually be the first of the words of the New Testament that were ever written down. Again, we don't know this. But either way you look at it, this is something core. This, this passage describing the nature of Jesus and what he did really is one of the foundational touchstones as to how we think of God. And I'm going to, in typical uh, three-point fashion, divide this really into kind of three areas and say that in this passage we're given a glimpse into three aspects of the inner life of God as revealed by Christ, things that we can look at, things that we can emulate, things that we can follow. Uh, first thing I'm going to talk about is Christ's eternal attitude regarding his power and rights. Second is Christ's self-emptying action as an expression of this attitude. And the third is Christ's worthiness as demonstrated by the Father to receive all power, honor, and glory because of what he's done. One further note, um, and I'd like you to kind of join with me and, and really meditate upon what this means. But this passage is talking about Jesus specifically, refers to Christ by name. But as we go through it, I think we need to remember something else, something that Jesus himself said to his followers. And recognize that anything we see about Jesus, in fact, says something even deeper about the Father. Um, in John 14, we see a really fascinating and profound conversation between Jesus, Thomas, and Philip that I think gives these verses um, an even deeper meaning that I think we would really do well to consider, and I'd like us to keep in the front of our mind as we look forward. The, the conversation goes like this. And keep in mind I'm jumping in the middle of this conversation so we don't have uh, uh, too long of a reading. But the passage is John 14, uh, verses 6 to 11, if you'd like to read the entire passage for context. But in, in verse 6, it says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And this is the part I want to focus on. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father believing in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. At least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. That, that verse should arrest us, this passage. He who has seen me has seen the Father. This is actually one of the most radical statements in the entirety of the New Testament. This is a person, uh, uh, by all appearances to those seeing him, a human being, walking around saying, if you have seen me, you have seen the heart of God. What I do is the heart of God. Who I am is the heart of God. I am he. I am the one. I am the son of God. And if you see me, you see my dad. He's not just claiming he's speaking on behalf of the father or coming from it. He's, he's claiming identity. And he's claiming that we can know true things about the father by watching what he does. So I, I had to quote this hymn. It's a hymn we sang in our church growing up. It's got a lot of 18th century these and thous in it. But the words are really profound. And whenever I think of this, I think of it. And so I just wanted to read some of these words. You, you, may, you may be familiar with it. You might not be. Um, but it goes a little bit like this. Thou art the everlasting word, the Father's only Son, God manifestly seen and heard, and heaven's beloved one. In thee, most perfectly expressed, the Father's glory shine. 
of the full deity possessed, eternally divine, true image of the infinite, whose essence is concealed, brightness of uncreated light, the heart of God revealed. The, this, this poetry captures the heart of what this verse is about. What we see Jesus doing in Philippians 2 is an image of what the Father does. What we see there is not just a sequence of isolated actions. What we're seeing is a message about who God is and his inmost being, what he's doing when no one else is looking, what he was doing before he even made a world. This is who God is. So with that in mind, let's dive in. Let's look at these three points. So first, Christ's attitude regarding his power and rights. Verse 6 really sets the stage, um, and they tell us, again, something that should challenge really kind of how we think of God. Um, they certainly challenge everything that ever came before in the history of the human race. And honestly, I think if we're careful, we would admit that we tend to default to some of those uh, conceptions even right now. This idea of God kind of being aloof, God being um, separate, God being distant, God being sort of um, something that we really can't, someone really can approach. But what this verse says is that Jesus being in the form of God, to use the old language, or in the nature of God, just, that's, just, that's just saying that Jesus is God with all his rights, powers, and prerogatives, didn't think that possessing these things was something to be held onto or sought after. This should make a stop. If John 14 can truly be applied to this, and I believe it can, then this is saying that Jesus and God's attitude towards his own power is not that he's trying to hold onto it. He is not seeking to hold on to his authority. He is not seeking to hold on to his rights. He has these things, and he desires to give them away for our good. Um, God, God is not selfish. God is not self-focused in any way. Um, this is one of the reasons why the early Christians had to um, eventually sort of put all this together in the doctrine of the Trinity, this idea that God actually has a bit of a community happening inside of who he is, the Father giving everything he has to the Son, the Son giving everything he has back to the Father, and this idea that within God is this eternal exchange where neither is focused on self, but all are focused on the other one, so that God is always, always giving himself, even within himself. It's kind of confusing to think of. But, but this is kind of what this is getting at, this idea that when God looks at himself, he doesn't see something to hold on to. When Jesus looks at his power and his authority, he's not seeing something to be grasped onto tightly. He's seeing something to be used for the good of others, to be poured out. His very nature, this is talking about his very nature, the, the very nature of God is self-giving love. Um, this often conflicts with what our culture says we should be doing about our rights. <laughs> um, and, and that's really the kind of the point I want to get to here. Um, I am deeply thankful that in our country, as in others that we don't, we have rights that are guaranteed us. The founding documents say these are ours. In fact, we, they even say that they're given by God, and that's really kind of what it comes down to. I'm thankful that church and state are separate and that we have protections for this. I worry, though, that oftentimes we fall short and stop here. We say, yes, these are ours, and we just say, great, and we'd like to keep it that way. It worries me, though, because it fails to give enough credence to what we have been given our rights from God to do, what we've been given our rights, powers, privileges, and responsibilities for. We've been given these rights as gifts so that we can give them away for the good of and for service of others. Why, why should we think that? Because that's exactly what God himself thinks. This is the attitude that God has towards his own power, as exemplified in what Jesus Christ did for us and what it mentions that Christ said in these verses. 
You know, when I think of the practical decisions we've had to make during this pandemic, I mean, it, it just it bothers me the length of things that we've had to do to do the right thing here. I mean, we've had to stop meeting in person, um, and we've done that on good data. I mean, solid public health data indicates that the more people, the more groups that meet during spikes like this, the more community transfer there is, and the more hospitals get overwhelmed, and you kind of get into the spiral. Um, but it just bothers me. I'm just going to be honest. It bothers me how many voices, uh, not here, but out in the world, are calling for Christians to stand on our rights, are even doing legal challenges about these types of things. I mean, yes, these are our rights. It's what it says. But I can't see that it's what we're supposed to be doing with them. Um, we're not here to defend our rights. We're here to take those rights, look at them, and give them away for the good of others. We're supposed to give them to other people. This is the example that Jesus has left for us. This is, the, this is what the heart of God looks like if we're to take these verses at their face value. Um, the next verses in this passage describe Christ's self-emptying action as an expression of this. This isn't just sort of an ideal that God has. This isn't just sort of what God hopes that he would do, what Jesus hopes he would do. This is what God in Christ has actually done. This is who God has always been. And it talks about the self-giving of Christ on the cross. It defines what this means. It says that he made himself nothing and then gives us explicit detail as to what making himself nothing means when it refers to Christ. Number one, he gave up all of his defined privileges and became in all ways a human being. Um, that means, you know, to be a true human. It means to be subject to all limitations that humans are subject to. I mean, it's, it's um, a massive outpouring of, of um, love to be able to compress oneself. If you are the one who created all things, you know, into a, I don't know how tall he was, maybe five feet, two, five foot two human body with all of the limitations imposed by that. Number two, as a human, he was even born um, not necessarily in the best circumstances. I think it's, again, easy. We talk about Christ being born in a manger in Bethlehem. Very true. But we fail to realize what that may have meant in the culture of his day. Um, the Jewish nation was a fairly um, bad-off, uh, oppressed and despised minority in the Roman Empire. I mean, this, this and, and, and within that nation, he was not born to the most wealthy. He was not born to the most well-connected. He was born to one of the poorer families living in a fairly... Uh, despised town, one of the hymns again I grew up with, which I always go back to for material, talks about that despised Nazareth. That's pretty much the attitude. You know, I was thinking this morning of what that would equate to in today's terms. It was hard to come up with something that was exactly the same, but I would ask you to go through the exercise sometime. Just take a world map, pick a large well-to-do country, you know, there's a number of them out there. Find a country that has a bad relationship with them that they've kind of been not treating well. Find the poorest town that you can think of in that country, just based on where it's out on the map, and then imagine being a working-class family living there. That's where Jesus would be born nowadays. That, that's what this looked like. We, it doesn't impress us as much as it should because of what, well, the fact that we've heard it a lot. And then, even more so, he allowed us to condemn him. He allowed us to execute him as a criminal. Much of our focus on the cross looks at the divine side of it, and, much, and as well it should. Because in that death, Jesus was sacrificing himself to save us from our sins. But if you look at this from a human perspective, look at what he allowed us to do to him. Look at what God let us do to affect our redemption. Look at the depth that he was willing to go. And crucifixion is not trivial. I think we all know this, but it's literally the most painful death that humans have ever come up with. Medically speaking, it is the worst way to die ever created by human hands. I mean, if... For him to have come at that point means he was willing to let us do our worst to him because we have really not come up with anything worse than that since. Um, 
this radicalness, this this um, this message of the lengths that God was willing to go, the lengths that which He was willing to give, um, was understood implicitly by the cultures that received the message. The Jews, the Greeks, uh, the Gentiles, as they're referred to in the New Testament, they got this, they heard this, and they rejected it. And really the main reason why I rejected it is because it so shattered their ideas of what God was supposed to be like. If you look at the history of this, that was, that's what is meant um, when Paul is talking about being foolish to the Greeks. So uh, to give you an example, you know, a lot of the Greeks, even the ones that kind of worship their other gods, they did believe in a supreme God. Um, he was aloof. He was above everything. He was so powerful and so transcendent that no one could reach him. He wasn't worth worshiping because he was so far out of everything. But he kind of kept the world sort of in a system. He was outside. He kept everything in its place. Everything had its hierarchy. And all of a sudden, you had this group of ragtag preachers coming out of the despised nation saying, no, we're talking about that God. We're not talking about Zeus. We're not talking about Hera. We're not talking about these sub-gods. We're talking about that one, the one you call the God with a capital T, you know, the one that you call the most high. We call him the most high too. And here's what he did. Think about that. Think of how foolish that would sound, how I mean, countercultural is another word. You can, you can think of a ton of words to describe it, but that's how this message hit them. I think sometimes we kind of forget that, just given the fact that we've heard it so often, and I, I kind of wanted to bring that, bring that back to us. Um, the point with this, though, is that it comes back to what God wants us to do if we are to look like him. We're to look at the things that he has given us, the rights, the responsibilities, and we're to ask not how can I keep these, but how can I give these? How can I um, yield these for others so that others can come to know him, others can come to love him, and so that others can flourish, benefit, and so the world can come to know this God whom we serve and ideally hopefully become healthier in the process. Um, this was something that Christians have understood for, de for centuries, too. You know, there are, um, I have to admit, I, I, saw, I read an article once about some early Christian responses to pandemics, and then I couldn't find it again, and I would have loved to be able to bring direct, direct quotes, but I believe in sources, and since I couldn't find it, I'm not going to quote. Um, but if they are correct, this idea of Christians, even potentially, as we have done, not meeting together for a period of time to prevent transmission of illness is not new. It's quite old. It's been there since the beginning even as other Christians have said, you know, this town is dying because of a plague. I am going to go in and nurse them. I'm going to go in and take care of them at great personal risk. I think that there's been a lot of talk about how we respond to where we're at right now as being trying to avoid fear, and I could not agree with them. We have to avoid fear. There's no place for fear in the heart of a believer. We know, we know whom we have believed. We know where we're going. We know what Jesus is doing with this world. We should rush in to treat, to help, to cure. But sometimes rushing in means holding back. And the early Christians knew that too. And I would just, I would throw that out there as we, as we think about going into this next year of the pandemic and as we have to think as a church, as a society about difficult decisions and, and difficult things to do. Let's, we need to think about what, what do we need to do to make sure the gospel gets out there in the best way possible. You know, a gospel that says we're willing to do whatever the right thing is, even if it means giving of ourselves in a difficult way or a way that doesn't feel right in the moment. Maybe it is. Finally, I turn to verses uh, 7 and 8. And I label this section, Christ's worthiness is demonstrated by the Father to receive all power, honor, and glory. I think 
you know, as we read this passage, this is the part that maybe we're most comfortable with because it kind of gets back to sort of language that I think we all intrinsically want to use about the one that we love and worship and follow. Um, the passage does not end with humiliation. It does not end with um, this utter giving. It actually ends in a receiving. It ends with Christ's resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, really all this, this image of him being placed in the highest place above all heaven and earth, king of heaven and earth, the king of, of um, the kingdom of God, the one who will bring in, um, one who will come again to reign in power and glory. Um, but there is something here I think that we need to look at. And I remember when I saw it, I actually saw it the first time when I began to look at it in reference to the Great Commission. And for all I know, the folks, uh, whether it was Paul or whether it was some earlier Christian hymn writers who wrote this passage, um, they may have been referring directly to the Great Commission when they wrote this. Um, one of the reasons why we're not sure whether this is actually a hymn is because no one's actually found the hymnal, so to speak. It'd be great if we could find, like, you know, Christian hymnal version 1.1 that says, you know, had the hymn in it. We don't have that. Um, but the Great Commission has the same concept in it, and I want to bring it out and see if you hear it. Look at the word first in verse 9 where it says, therefore, on the basis of, because of. And then I'm going to read the Great Commission. This is Matthew 28 and 18. Um, going 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Um, I think most of us have sat through multiple sermons on the Great Commission. I know I have. Um, and the vast majority, in fact, really all of them, really, have focused on the call to us, what we're supposed to do. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach, and then Jesus has promised to be with us. I haven't heard a lot that are focused on the very first sentence, though. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is God. He has these things by right. What does it mean, then? for all authority on heaven and earth to have been given to him. What does it mean in Philippians 2 when he says that, therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place? Well, what are these things given to Jesus on the basis of? In Philippians 2, we have to conclude it's on the basis of his submission. It's on the basis of his willingness to give it all away for us. He is worthy because he's willing to give it all up. Christ's... Um, Christ's worthiness to receive all glory, honor, and power to, and praise has been given by the Father because Christ was willing to give it all up for us. It is on the basis of his death and resurrection that he received this kingship from God. Not that it was ever in doubt. God's character has always been the same. God has never been different from before the first clock tick of time began and will be the same long after earth is a passing memory and we are all in the kingdom. But God has always been willing to give himself away. Jesus was always willing to do what he did on the cross. In fact, you could even go so far as to say that what we saw Jesus doing on the cross is the fullest and deepest expression there ever was of God's heart, of who he was. And he is worthy to have all glory, honor, and power, and praise because of what he was willing to do and because of how he sees, how his heart is in this nature. In this nature. Well, what does this mean for us? I'd like to kind of close with a practical, a practical note here. Um, Luke 9, 23 through 25, Jesus says that if anyone wants to come after him, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow him. 
For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for his sake will save it. He then asks, what it profits a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit or lose his very self. You know, old, old translations often say forfeit or lose their soul. But self really is kind of a better version here because self, soul in this context, it's not referring to immortality. It's referring to your inner life. It's referring to who you are on the inside. It's saying, you know, if you lose who you are supposed to be, even if you gain everything else, what does it profit you? Um, read in the light of Philippians 2, I, th I think these verses, these, these always confuse me. What does it mean to lose yourself to get it? What does it mean that if you try to keep things, you will lose it? If I look at it in the light of Philippians 2, though, I really don't think there's much of a paradox here at all. And, and I think all of us can probably look back at times in our lives where we have given something up for someone else. We have said, you know what, I could insist on this, but I'm not. You know, I could say this, I could do this, I could apply this, but I'm not. I'm going to hold back because this isn't about me right now. Um, honestly, I think that this is Jesus simply saying, I, I just need you to do what I do. I want you to be like me. I want you to be like the Father. You know, John 17, um, don't have time to go into it in depth here, but it gives this beautiful picture of the Father giving his glory to Jesus. And Jesus saying, sure, and then giving the glory right back. And then in this passage that should cause us all to both be, I kind of tremble, really. It talks about him giving it to us. Why? Not so we can keep it. The Father didn't keep it, he gave it to the Son. The Son's not keeping it, he's giving it to the Father. Why does he give it to us? So we can have the privilege and the honor of giving it back. We give it back to God by giving it to him and also by giving it to each other. You know, the Aztecs were cruel, not because there was something so different about them as people. They had kids, they ate, they slept, they did all the things we do, but their gods were cruel. They sacrificed humans because their gods required this blood to keep the universe moving, kind of like gasoline or something. But the true God, the God that we serve and follow, the God that has shown us his heart in Jesus Christ is the exact opposite. He requires nothing. There's nothing that he needs. There's nothing that he ever could need. He's self-sufficient in every way. And yet he was, willing to, he was willing and always has been willing to divest himself of all that for us, for those he loves. So as we face this next year that I hope is the last of the COVID pandemic, um, there's a lot of tentatively good signs that suggest that hopefully we can have this under control by this time next year in a rather profound way. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that is indeed the case and my prayers are bent in that direction. And whatever else may come this year, again, the uncertainty of the times has not yet gone away. I just think we need to keep these things in mind. I think there's gonna be increasing pressure from our culture to behave like them, to focus on us, to focus on self, to focus on preserving our place, preserving our rights, to focus on personal loss and personal gain in all this. I don't think that's what we're called to do. I think instead we're called to look at our gifts, and I'm going to refer to them as gifts now because, I mean, even in the founding documents of our country, our rights are referred to as gifts from God. These aren't things that we have intrinsically. We have nothing intrinsically on our own. It's all from him. So these are gifts, focusing on our gifts, the gifts that are ours, um, and ask how we can spend them. Ask who else we can give them to. Who, how can we give these out in service to others? How can we use these things best in a difficult time to show people what the true God really is like? That could mean rushing into a COVID ward. Um, that could mean choosing to not meet together with the express idea that we're doing this to protect our community and with the express goal of sharing it with that community so that the gospel message in there can come forth in an explicit and God-honoring fashion. I'm really, 
I think we've had an unprecedented opportunity over 2020 to have a powerful gospel witness. I actually feel like our church has done a pretty darn good job of it. Um, I pray that we will continue to have that powerful witness moving forward, and I hope that these thoughts from Philippians 2 can maybe just give some 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 thoughts, some ideas, some some a greater picture of who the God is we serve, so that we can more consciously conform our behavior to his, to conform our behavior to that of Christ, to be um, people that consciously follow Jesus and the Father in how they act towards situations like this as we continue to move through this time, and in so doing, help in what ways we can to share the gospel and to show the kingdom of God to others. Father, I thank you for um, your word. I thank you for the kind of God that you are. I thank you, Lord, that despite your absolute right to all power and glory and authority, you were willing in the person of your son to give that up for us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength, that you would give us the wisdom and foresight to be able to try to emulate you in all things. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the gospel witness that we have, and I ask, Lord, that you would help that witness to be strengthened as we move forward into 2021. In your name we pray. Amen.